Well, contrary to what we might think at first glance, the baptism of Jesus, which we're looking at this morning, is an event which is rich in significance and practical relevance for you and for the life and the ministry of the church. Every year, I look forward to addressing it on this particular Sunday when the church around the world commemorates it. Let me, just to start, give you three reasons for its importance. Because it's the kind of thing that people look at and think, wow, that's strange, I'm not sure what to do with it. I'm not sure what to make of it. So the first, the first reason is this. The baptism of Jesus is recorded in all four Gospels. And outside of the events in the last week of Jesus' life, right, which are also recorded in all four, that puts it in very elite company. So obviously it's important. It's in all four Gospels. The other thing is this. The event itself is the induction or the anointing or therefore the ordination, the public ordination rite, liturgy, inducting Jesus into his ministry. It is this event in our text to which Jesus refers in his inaugural sermon in the synagogue when he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, and he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He's referring back to his baptism. And the third thing is that I think one could preach a great deal of the whole sweep of the Bible, of the whole history of redemption, believe it or not, from just this text. It's kind of like the, like the midpoint on an hourglass. Everything before it converges on it, and everything after it flows out of it. Believe me, I think I've tried in the past to preach the whole history of redemption from this text. So what I want to do today is I want to focus the sermon more narrowly, not try to point out everything that's here, but I want to focus on the word eschatological. Shocker, I know, but that's the word I want to focus on. So this, this particular Sunday and this particular sermon has great, I cherish the event and the opportunity to preach on it every year, but, I, but it's also a kind of uh, sermon which serves the following purpose. Like if you ever find yourself thinking, why does he say eschatological so much? Right? And that does happen. And what, just what does he mean? The answer is this. The answer is, listen to the sermon on the baptism of Jesus. It comes every January, and it underwrites my use of the word in February, March, all the way down the rest of the year. So with that, we're going to look at the text under two headings, the sermon and the baptism. The sermon and the baptism. So first, the sermon. John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he preaches this message of radical reorientation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John's opening salvo is a word about the end. Repentance, you know, a turn, a conversion, a new direction, is required... Because the kingdom of the Messiah, long promised in the prophets, the glory of the age to come, is now at hand. 
the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom with its origin in heaven, the kingdom centered in heaven, the kingdom of heavenly life and heavenly power, the kingdom which creates heavenly people. In the New Testament, when we speak of heaven, we speak both of a realm and a quality of life. The kingdom which leads people to heaven. The kingdom which creates citizens of heaven. The kingdom which creates a people whose polis, whose city, whose politics are above. It's the kingdom which can in no way be identified with or collapsed into the vaporizing earthly kingdoms of this age. That kingdom, which will conquer and subdue even as it judges and shatters all other kingdoms, the everlasting dominion of the Messiah is now at hand. In short, then, the end, the eschaton. Eschaton is just a Greek word which means end. The end foreseen by the prophets has arrived. This is very important to see. When we encounter Jesus Christ, right, we are encountering the goal or the end for which God designed us, the end for which God created man, namely face-to-face fellowship with the triune Lord in glory. And we're not fit, right? We are not fit for this kingdom in our current natural state. Thus, repentance. A kind of interior resurrection is needed to enter the kingdom. And thus John appears preaching a baptism of repentance. From the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and glory. And the sermon that he preaches is shot through with this idea. It's the first word out of his mouth in verse 2. The first word out of his mouth in verse 2, repent. It's what it means to speak of John as the forerunner. Spoken of in the prophet Isaiah, and you see that in verse 3. He prepares the way of the Lord and makes straight his paths. Valleys have to be lifted up. Hills have to be leveled in our souls for this kingdom to take root. So from the very beginning, the gospel has you in its crosshairs. Right? Valleys in your soul have to be lifted up. Mountains in your soul have to be leveled. The gospel is about restructuring us, and that means it's going to destabilize us. So John, dressed up in the garb of an Old Testament prophet, summons to repentance. And those who respond come, the text tells us. They come confessing their sins. Now, concerning this John, John the Baptist, Jesus tells us expressly, This is later in Matthew's gospel. He tells us that John is Elijah. I mean, this is wild stuff, people. John is Elijah, who is to come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Get that. So John's appearance means this. It means the great and dreadful day of the Lord is at hand. Right? And it's this which tells us that the gospel is an eschatological gospel. Now, I've already given a brief definition of it. It just means things pertaining to the end, things pertaining to the consummation. 
But we're going to unpack it by looking at the rest of this text. It's particularly looking at John's sermon, beginning in verse 7. So I want to spend a few minutes on this sermon. It is striking, this sermon, how confrontational and how sharp John is. I mean, this is the sermon you preach for introducing Jesus to the world? Hopefully it will become clear why. I mean, he, he takes this tone? So John calls those among the religious leaders coming out to be baptized by him a brood of vipers, a bunch of snakes. And he asks them, who warned you to flee from the wrath which is to come? So again, notice again, John's baptism is about the end. It's about fleeing the wrath which is to come. And he figures he knows what they'll say. We're good Jewish people. We have pedigree. We're in the covenant. And then he says to them, do not rest in your Jewish ethnicity. Do not say to yourselves, we're the children of Abraham. I come from a long line of Presbyterians. Because God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. John could care less about your heritage. If you trust in your connection to Abraham or your standing in the covenant and you don't heed this sermon from my mouth, you will be cut off. It's audacious and it is profoundly offensive. We're used to it probably because we've heard these words quite a few times. But this is a word from the future. Flee the coming wrath. In fact, John says, the wrath is nearer than you think. The kingdom is at hand, and that means the judgment is at hand. And so he says in verse 10, get this, the axe is already laid to the root of the tree. It's like you have a tree there, and the axe is already in the bottom of the tree. And every tree which doesn't bear good fruit, every one, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, this is really hard for us to grasp. But please get this. Get this. Jesus has not even begun his earthly public ministry. And the end is already at hand. And the final judgment, the axe is already in the trees. It's a kind of mind warp that has to happen if we're going to ever understand what it means to say the gospel is an eschatological gospel. Jesus has not started his ministry yet. And the final judgment of the world is already at hand in John's preaching. His whole sermon testifies that in the appearance of this one, the end breaks into the present. And that's why. That's why the rest of the New Testament can say things that may often puzzle us. Things like this. The end of all things is at hand. The Lord is near. The day is at hand. The judge is standing at the door. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Well, I thought the second judgment was way out there, thousands of years away. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Eternal fire awaits the fruitless. And the one who comes after John, he says, namely Jesus, will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this this clearly implies, right, a fiery 
purging baptism at the hands of Messiah. And so we have this situation. Either one receives the Pentecostal tongues of healing, transfiguring fire, or one is baptized with the fire of judgment. But fire there will be one way or the other. And it's the fire of the end. And then Jesus is said in verse 12, as if this isn't clear enough, to be ready with his winnowing fan to clear his threshing floor, to gather his wheat into the barn, and to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Again, Jesus has not yet appeared on the scene. And he's already ready to gather the eschatological harvest. The wheat and tare separation that comes at the end is ready to happen, John says. It's a shocking, disorienting sermon. We haven't even seen this Jesus guy yet. He's ready to administer the final, fiery, eternal judgment of God. And so John piles up in this sermon... Fierce images of this coming judgment. Fire and brimstone preaching. And it's given to a people who are in the covenant and who are in fact coming to be baptized. Who are confessing their sins as they come. So, I mean, what precisely, more precisely, is going on here? I mean, couldn't we have had a nicer, let me introduce you to Jesus sermon than this? I mean, my relatives came to watch me be baptized, John. You're making this very hard for our assimilation team and our greeters. John is the head of the Neighborhood Alienation Committee. So he clearly sees this coming kingdom in Jesus as a coming judgment. When Jesus ushers in his kingdom... He is bringing the final judgment of the last day forward into history. I have contended for many, many years, and I'll say it again here, that until the vertigo of this, until the shock and reorientation of this affects us, we have not even begun to deal with who Jesus is. That fiery day is now at hand. This is what we mean when we say the gospel is an eschatological gospel. It is the future brought into our time. It is the age to come invading our age. It's not just Jesus did some stuff for us now, we get some help, and then later on at the end we have a judgment and we go to heaven. So, one last thing about this. This quality of the gospel, namely that it's an invasion of the end, this quality cannot be roped off cordoned off, safely separated from the rest of the gospel, as if we could have a part of the gospel which is about the end and another part which is really not about the end. Maybe part of the gospel is about this worldly ends and another part's about the end end. No, John won't have it. The whole gospel, every nook and cranny, every crack and crevice is eschatological. The way to envision this is to think of the Christian faith as a glass of water. And if it were a glass of water, eschatology would not be some of the water. It would be like a dye that you shot into the water. It would just pervade the whole thing. I sent a little clip of a podcast to a few people yesterday from the the German Catholic theologian named Reinhard Hutter, who has a new book out called Bound for Beatitude. 
And he states very plainly at the beginning of the podcast, all of Christian theology from the beginning to the end is eschatological. If it isn't, then it's something that's not Christian theology. There is no point in the Christian life where we are not concerned, consumed, and oriented to the end of all things. In short, this is why Paul calls Jesus the eschatos Adam, right? The last man, the man of the end, the eschatological Adam. He confronts us with the end of all things. That's the sermon that John preaches. That's the sermon. The last sermon of the old era, the first sermon of the new era, the hinge between the two eras. This is the text. So secondly, that's the sermon. I want to look at the baptism itself now. Something wonderful happens here. And it's the reason that the baptism of Jesus must be celebrated. It must be proclaimed after Advent. There's great wisdom in the way the church lays these days out. The one, the one who will administer the wrath which is to come, right? The hand that is holding the axe that's already at the root of the tree. The one who cuts down and throws into the fire. The one who already has his winnowing fork in his hand and is ready to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That one appears on the scene and he is ready to usher in his kingdom. And how does he appear? He appears remarkably as one of us. He appears on our side of the coming fire. There was a pop song about 20 years ago with the word, what if God was one of us just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Some of you may remember this song. That sentiment is not far from the kingdom or the ethos of this text. Where is the one who is going to usher in the end? And all of this fire and brimstone, where is he? You know where he is? He's back there, waiting on line with his guilty countrymen, shuffling along with the unwashed masses, ready to submit to John's preaching and baptizing ministry. And thus he comes as the one who fully identifies with Israel and us under John's scathing account of the coming judgment. This is the gospel in the baptism of Jesus. Now, if we're all honest, we'll admit that Jesus' appearance as a candidate for baptism still creates some problems for us. Right? If it's a baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sins, which it is, if it involves fleeing the wrath which is to come, which it does, then why does Jesus submit to it? I mean, we can understand Jesus administering this baptism. But submitting to it? And and this was obviously a scandal for John as well. You heard it in the gospel lesson. He objects and he says, I need to be baptized by you. Like, what's going on here? And you're coming to me? You're coming to me to be baptized? And our Lord's reply in the text is quite instructive. Here's what Jesus says. Permit it to be so now. 
For thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's a shocking response. And it's a little bit, if we admit, you know, ambiguous. Jesus is saying something like this. For God's righteousness to be fulfilled. For all the Old Testament promises of God's justice and the rectification of the cosmos to come to pass. Then I must identify with you fully and completely. I will be baptized into your sinfulness and into your need. So the beauty of this is that our Lord Jesus is not identified with our corruption solely at the cross. Uniquely at the cross, to be sure, but not solely. But the whole of his life, what the Reformed tradition calls his active obedience... The whole span of his life is vicarious, meaning it's for you. It's done in your place. You need not just his death, but you need his life. The the founder of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, was a Princeton professor named J. Gresham Machen. Machen died in, I think it's North Dakota. He died on New Year's Day, January 36 or 37. And his last telegraph back east, when he knew he was dying, was so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. Like on your deathbed, it's going to matter that Jesus' whole obedience becomes yours in the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. Calvin has this wonderful line. I've, I've probably cited it a half a dozen times. He says this, From the time he took the form of a servant he began to pay the price for our liberation. Right? From the moment of the virginal conception, Jesus is suffering, paying, entering into the human condition. The Book of Common Prayer, the great uh, product of the English Reformation, the Book of Common Prayer has this wonderful great litany in it. And again, I highly recommend you look this up. You can get it online. But at part, in part of the litany, they say this. By the mystery of thy holy incarnation, by thy holy nativity and submission to the law, by thy baptism, fasting and temptation, good Lord, deliver us. Notice that, right? They go on to say, by thine agony and bloody sweat, by thy cross and passion, by thy precious death and burial. By thy glorious resurrection and ascension, good Lord, deliver us. But notice where they start. By what does Jesus save us? The cross? Yes, of course. But also by the mystery of his holy incarnation, by his holy nativity, by his whole submission to the law, by his baptism. These are all saving acts of the one who lives, who lives identified with you and me, so that he can die identified for us. As one of the the early church fathers put it, and this is beautiful, he says this. Even as he fulfilled the righteousness of baptism, he fulfilled the righteousness of being born and growing, of eating and drinking, of sleeping and relaxing. Jesus hallowed all these events for us because we didn't do any of them right. (laughs) Eating, sleeping, drinking, relaxing, being born, growing. It's as if he lives your whole life for you, the ways to be lived. 
He also, this church father goes on and says, fulfilled the righteousness of experiencing temptation and fear and flight and sadness, as well as suffering, death and resurrection. That is, he continues, according to the requirement of the human nature he took upon himself, he fulfilled all this whole sweep of righteousness. The whole life of Jesus is a saving life. That's one of the grand lessons of this text. It culminates, of course, it's seen profoundly at the cross. But you know what Jesus says about the cross, about his death there, what he calls it? He calls it a baptism. And it's a baptism that's deeply linked. It's locked into this baptism. This baptism in water implies that baptism in blood at Calvary. That baptism in blood fulfills this baptism at the hand of John. So that the totality of Jesus Christ's historical existence is a baptism into our corruption, into our need to heal and restore us. He undergoes baptism. And then we are subsequently baptized into the baptized one. Here's another startling quotation from Calvin. On this event, by the way, he's talking about this, this, this baptism of Jesus. He says this. He dedicated and sanctified baptism by his own body, that he might have it in common with us, as the firmest bond of the union and fellowship he has deigned to form with us. Now, if that doesn't convince you that maybe the baptism of Jesus is an important event, let me just say it again. Calvin says that in his own body, Jesus is hallowed baptism because he wants to have it in common with us, that it is the firmest bond of union and fellowship with us. Long before you were baptized into Christ, he was baptized into your corruption. So here, in this text, Jesus is saying they need cleansing. I will stand with them and purify them. They are coming confessing their sins. I will be numbered, numbered, counted with the transgressors. Put me in the line with the transgressors. Let their sins be confessed on my head. That's what he's saying to John. Let all the sins of all these people be confessed on my head. More than that, though, more than that, the wrath which is to come. The axe which cuts down the unfruitful trees, the unquenchable fire by which the chaff is burned, all these, Jesus, the wielder of the axe, the righteous judge says, I will take them all on my own head. Now the fiery preaching of John looks different, doesn't it? All of that fire, I'll stand and have it consume me. This is a vivid picture of the gospel in this baptism. Here the judge declares that he will be the one judged. And it's this fulfilled righteousness, the righteousness of his whole life, which becomes yours when you repent and believe the gospel. And the next thing that happens toward the end of our text are these very familiar and dramatic events, which I just want to touch on briefly. Jesus is baptized. The heavens are torn. The spirit descends as a dove and the father declares, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 
When the Spirit here descends as a dove, we're reminded of the Spirit hovering, dove-like, over the original creation, over the chaos and darkness in the waters, right? That's why, by the way, the Old Testament lesson for the baptism of Jesus is Genesis 1, 1 through 5. We don't make these readings up, right? We're, we're pulling them from the lectionary. Why is this? Because the church recognizes that even as the Spirit hovered over the original creation, the Spirit that hovers over Jesus is hovering over the one who is the inaugurator of the new creation. right? The new Adam, the last Adam, the eschatos Adam, the bringer of the new creation. In the church's historical celebration of this feast day, she has always recognized we have to go back to Genesis 1 to understand what's happening when Jesus is baptized. Because he's coming now to remake the world. And finally, note that this baptism is Trinitarian. Right? The Father speaks, the Spirit descends, the Son is baptized. So the reason Christians baptize into the triune name has its roots right here. It's because there's a Trinitarian structure to Jesus' baptism. But this appearance, this revelation of the Trinity, means more. Right? It means that the goal of this eschatological gospel, the reason Jesus came, the reason he was baptized in water and in blood, is to bring a people into this glorious, face-to-face, intimate, joyful communion with the triune God in everlasting delight and rest. It's the same communion he lives out of in his humanity. We are baptized into the threefold name because the kingdom which comes from heaven leads us to heaven. And the heart of heaven is the glory of the tri-personal God. So this eschatology word, let's put it differently so maybe this will help us, give us another angle on grasping it. The Holy Trinity is the source and the goal of Christian eschatology. Right? The Holy Trinity is the source and the goal of Christian eschatology. From him, through him, and unto him are all things. So it turns out, this is not just like an anomalous thing. Well, baptism of Jesus is kind of strange. Don't know what to do with it. It is fitting that this event is placed immediately after the Advent cycle. Why? Because here we're reminded that Jesus, who humbled himself to take up our humanity in the incarnation, right? he has not yet reached the depths of his humiliation. Right? His descent does not terminate with Christmas. It does not terminate in the manger. He continues throughout the whole of his public ministry to descend to go further down, to empty himself out, to stand with us, to identify with us in all of our alienation and our need. So here's the the whole sermon in one sentence. Jesus, the incarnate judge, the wielder of the axe, the one who baptizes with fire, is unreservedly and forever on your side. unreservedly and forever on your side, your side of the line. And this baptism, 
and his subsequent baptism in blood at Calvary, they turn this coming judgment ordeal, right? This coming judgment ordeal of which John preached, an ordeal which we all will face, they turn it into the blessed healing waters of Christian baptism. And when Jesus baptizes you into his baptism, you are by faith united to the one who the text says is well-pleasing to his Father in heaven. Right? And as such, and only as such, are we fully accepted in the beloved. Praise be to God for the baptism of our Lord. Amen.